Good morning. Some of y'all need some more coffee. Well, man, uh, for those of you that are like me, a child of the 90s, uh, I grew up with two major concerns. Tim Rogers is looking at me like I'm so young right now. That's okay, Tim. Uh, we love you. Um, if you're like me, growing up a child in the 90s, I, ha- I mean, major concerns for my life. The first one was I thought that quicksand was going to be a much bigger problem than it turned out to be. <laughs> Without stealing the wonderful John Mulaney's bit, those of us who grew up in the 90s, it seemed like every single cartoon show and movie and, and just show depicted quicksand as like the major concern for our like adult lives, right beside real sticks of dynamite and giant anvils falling out of the sky. It was common, I mean, maybe, maybe you're like me, maybe you're not, but to, to regularly worry about quicksand and knowing exactly what to do in the case that I found myself driving down the road and now all of a sudden in sand that looks like sand, but it actually swallows you up really slowly. And then as I came into adulthood, I, I not once, not once have ever come into contact with quicksand. It's real, it's totally out there. It's, it's not even like oh, every now and then, and it's a really big thing. It's not like your taxes. It's like, it's, it's never, never, ever, ever have I seen it. And so there was just this common anxiety about something that actually turned out not to be that big of a deal. Now, my second thing that I was really concerned about growing up, really kind of in my early you know, teenage years, was growing up in the church as like a church kid, growing up on the Bible and around the book of Proverbs, was because of these three chapters in the book of Proverbs, I was regularly concerned with the uh, apparently constant barrage of these forbidden and adulterous women who would just be throwing themselves at me. If you've ever read through Proverbs, maybe this week in preparation for today, it's just three chapters, 10% of the book, more than at least at the most or more than any other topic, is this whole thing about adultery. Now, as I came into adulthood, like quicksand, I didn't really find this to be all that much of a problem with me. Now, maybe that's because I'm an absolute dork, and at best, at best, I'm like an off-brand Oscar Isaac. And I mean, and my best is across the street, eyes squinted, sun in your eyes. That's me at my best. And even then, I'm off-brand. It just led me to think, like like quicksand, was, was Proverbs' whole kind of thing about adultery, is this all kind of out of proportion and overblown? Like, without downplaying the damage of infidelity, why three detailed chapters on this? Making it one of, if not the most, like I said, detailed topics in all of Proverbs. So as we continue in our series that we've been doing the fall, this fall, Wisdom's Way, Finding the Good Life in Proverbs, today we arrive at those three chapters, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. If you want to turn in your Bibles or tap your way there, that's where we're going to be today, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. Today we're looking at those proverbial quicksand passages. And what I found over the years is while, yes, these three chapters speak uh, strongly around the issues of sexual fidelity, it actually takes us even deeper into the story we developed last week around that calling to marry, to embrace wisdom. So today... I debated, do we read all three chapters? Do I read some selections? Do I summarize it? Do we read one chapter? No, I'm a glutton for punishment. And so we're going to read all three chapters, not just because I want to and I like reading and that's like just filling, you know, space so I don't have to preach as long. This is because I want us to have the full scope of what Proverbs is developing in these three chapters for you to see what's going on here. Now, normally, 
Uh, when we read from the, the scriptures, we have everybody stand as a way of, you know, with our bodies identifying that what we're reading, there's something special to this. Because it's three chapters today, you know, I'm going to let us, let us be seated, but we're going to begin with prayer, just preparing our hearts uh, to hear from Proverbs 3, or 5, 6, and 7. Let's not add anything else to it. Just do the 5 through 7. Let's pray, and then we'll read Proverbs 5 through 7 together. Uh, and so, uh, Father, like we just sang, uh, it is your will and your way uh, that we want to give ourselves to. And, and even that, that prayer of, of um, do whatever you, whatever you want to, God, is a, a, a full self-trust, God, that we, our desire is to trust you with all that we are and to find in that the good life. And so, God, as we now read into these three chapters, uh, today being a, a hard word, God, we continue with that posture, your will, God, your way. Would you do whatever you want to within our hearts today? Spirit, God, Jesus tells us that you are the one who not just comforts us, but you convict us. And my prayer is that you would do both of those things today within us. Would you convict and would you comfort? God, meet us as we look at Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. In your name we pray, amen. Proverbs chapter 5, look with me. My son... Be attentive to my wisdom. Yes, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, that is the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Oh, now, sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of the foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline. How my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to instruction, and now I'm on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and have given your pledge over to a stranger, if you've snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, plead with them urgently. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber, Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. 
Without having any chief officer or ruler, she, the ant, prepares her bread in the summer and she gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks his eyes and shuffles his feet and points with his finger. With perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly, and in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord against brothers and sisters. My son, keep your father's commandment and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you wake up, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of the discipline are the way of life. All to preserve you from the evil woman. From the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will take no compensation, and he will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Chapter 7. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through the lattice. I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner, she lies and waits. She seizes him, kisses him, and with a bold face, she says to him, I had to offer my sacrifices. Today I have paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens with Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband's not home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. 
Yes, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With all of her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her like an ox to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. Or as a bird rushes into a trap, he does not know it will cost him his life. Now, sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, the grave, going down to the chambers of death. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. So, let's just begin with some opening questions around the text to kind of situate ourselves in what we've just made our way through here. The first is, what is the connection between everything that we just read? Specifically, you probably noticed right there at the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. These random proverbs, the one about debt, the lazy, the sluggard person, the wicked man, the sixth thing, the seven abominations. What does that have to do with the rest of five, six, and seven? All of this talk about adultery, and then right here in the middle, you have these normal kind of proverbs about other areas of foolishness. Just here's the question. Proverbs has shown so much dedication, how they've been forming and putting together the book. Why not move that section to before or after, or somewhere else in the book. Why place it right in the middle? Do you see the, the little puzzle there? Why is this here? Why not move it? The other question is, what connection does 5, 6, and 7 have to the larger story that chapters 1 through 9 have been telling? To kind of go back to last week, the story of Proverbs, the way that it's inviting us to think of ourselves is to place ourselves in the shoes of this young man at the beginning of his life, with his whole life in front of him, and he has set before him these two options, the way of wisdom and the way of folly. And last week, the father's words have been this wise father saying, here is my recommendation, here is my advice. Pursue wisdom, love wisdom, this personification, marry, embrace, love her. What does what we just read have to do with that story? You see, like the personification, excuse me, of wisdom, Chapters 5 through 7 are meant to serve as a personification and a description of wisdom's opposite, folly, foolishness. You could see some of this when you just compare a little bit of the language from those 6, 1 through 19 to the rest of it. You have these, these, these uh, words or images that all compare to somewhere else in 5 or the back half of 6 or 7. The language of, of it being like a trap or a snare the imagery of an animal being caught in a trap, both the adulterous woman, the forbidden woman, and debt works that way, right? Both the adulterous woman brings utter and sudden ruin, and so does the wicked man, utter and sudden ruin, right? Both have smooth talk, so too with the wicked man. He has smooth speech. You see, there's the, okay, so there's actually a lot of connection here. This isn't they just were like, what do we do with these 19 verses? We don't want to put it in the back half, so we'll just put it here. They're trying to get us to see that there's more at work here than just adultery. There's, there's folly, and they're being compared and contrasted with one another. You can actually see this explicitly if you just turn over to the beginning uh, or the back half of chapter 9, where we see Lady Folly. The woman Folly is loud, 9 verse 13 says. She's seductive. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places. She calls to those whose passes, whoever's simple, come and eat with me, right? Come. And, and, and be with me. And then it says again, they don't know that her guests are in the depth of, of the grave. 
So what's going on here is, what we're meant to see here is adultery and lady folly. There's an overlap here. Uh, Dominic Hernandez, in his book on Proverbs, he says this. Just as the personified lady wisdom last week represents communication from the Lord, directing readers uh, toward the way of wisdom, so the seductress in Proverbs 1 through 9, the forbidden woman, the adulteress, demonstrates senselessness and represents the way of wrongdoing. And, hear this, is not a particular woman or intended to portray women in general. This seductress represents what humans choose when they are left to their own devices and ignore wisdom. So like Lady Wisdom and the Excellent Woman, Proverbs 31 last week, and so if you weren't here with us last week, please catch the podcast. These two are pairs to one another. When we read these three chapters within the context of the larger book, we find that there's layers going on here, right? There's layers being developed of saying, one, yes, adultery as foolishness and a conversation about a very strong conversation about sexual fidelity. And at the same time, this kind of metaphor, this poetic image and language of seeing that all foolishness, all folly is portrayed like adultery. And this is not a new development. If you read through all of the prophets around the time of Proverbs within Israel's history, the primary metaphor they used to depict idolatry, not trusting, not following, not loving and being with God the primary metaphor was that of, of adultery. They were cheating on God. And so Proverbs here takes that up, not to talk about idolatry, but about foolishness within the context of the wisdom, right? What's going on there? So today, that's a little bit of the like Bible nerdy setup stuff, right? Before we really get into, okay, what does this mean for us? But I want us to see, when we allow these three chapters, we see the context of what's going on there and without the rest of the book, that there's a new paradigm being set up to how you and I think about foolishness, how we think about not just bad decisions or, oops, I made a mistake, but foolishness as a betrayal, as us wandering from that which we are called to love and which actually loves us. So that's what we're going to develop today. Now, before we get in, this is just some little setup words. There are really strong words within what we're going to go through today. And as we're going to develop this, I, I want you to hear that Ryan is not coming, me, hi, Ryan, I am not coming uh, within the posture of the wise father, but my, my butt is in the seats with you on this one. That the past week, everything that I'm bringing forward today has been, I myself am, am working through um, in real time, um, if, if not in the past. And so this is not meant to be like, everybody sit down, Ryan is going to show you guys how to be wise. This is, we're all sitting under the text today, um, and I'm, I'm merely trying to almost preach to myself, and you guys are listening in a little bit, if that makes sense. So let's, 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 how do we summarize? How do we teach on three chapters in one week? I think you can summarize all of the Father's uh, conversation, his warning of Lady Wisdom in, in big, three big points. We did six last week, and that was too many. So three big points, you'll see them behind me. This is, this is how he puts it. If you were to distill all of five, six, and seven together, you could say the father's warning of, uh, of folly is that she's seductive, she's deceptive, and she's destructive. Once again, we're not talking about an actual woman. We're talking about foolishness. Foolishness is seductive. Folly is deceptive, and it ends in destruction. So let's tease these out a little bit. First, we find regularly the father depicts foolishness as seductive. Her lips drip honey. She's beautiful. She's dressed like a prostitute. We're not inherently sure what this means, but it's provocative. 
She is dressed provocative. She is appealing. And she comes, you know, at the end of chapter 7 there, offering unending and expansive delight and pleasure. She's incredibly attractive. The whole point is, if foolishness wasn't beautiful and attractive and at least had some appeal, we wouldn't need the book of Proverbs. But there is an appeal to folly. Folly which contrasts what we saw last week with wisdom. Lady, wisdom's invitation to the good life is found through a development of our maturity that regularly and often and almost always comes through deferred and delayed gratification as we trust in the Lord with all of our heart. That is the cauldron of development of what wisdom does within your heart. When you are at your most frustrated because it's taking so long, that is when wisdom is actually forming you at the deepest level through that deferred and delayed gratification. That is then where folly comes with her enticing appeal to you and me. She comes amid those delays with what we could summarize as shortcuts, loopholes, and alternatives. This is the deceptive allure. This is the seductive, this is the sexy talk. This is the whisper in your ear. It's shortcuts, loopholes, and alternatives to wisdom's way. This is precisely what we find back in Genesis 3 with the serpent in the garden. It is exactly what we find with Jesus and the enemy and his temptation in the wilderness. Is not an invitation, is not a seducing talk to something other than, but a shortcut to what God has already committed to give. So folly comes bringing short hole, shortcuts, loopholes, and alternatives. And so what this happens is this, it's this, when foolishness comes in, that seducing comes, it's this self-centered self-talk where we begin to doubt that God, that wisdom, that our spouse or our lack thereof, or these things all together are holding us back. That we are missing out because of them. And so we begin to what folly is depicted as in the book, lean on our own understanding. We become wise in our own eyes. And we create a seductive appeal that sees that actually that way, the way other than the wisdom I've been called to is the one that I actually want, the one that will give me what I need and what I deserve. How does this play out practically? Well, the alternative to marriage for those that are married comes in the form of adultery. It is an alternative to marriage. It is an alternative to what the hard work of what marriage is doing within me and within my spouse, the hard work of what we're having to deal with and the fact that maybe we won't because we're too hard-headed to move forward, that adultery becomes my alternative to that. Similarly, the, the shortcut of you know, sex apart from and outside of marriage, it is me finding the shortcut rather than finding the way of wisdom of sex and my, that deepness of relationship and intimacy being located within the context of marriage that I can do the shortcut in and around, you know, cohabitate, whatever, you, know, you fill in the blank with casual, whatever. It's the shortcut of getting to that level of pleasure and intimacy, but shortcutting the covenant, faithful, loyal love within the context of where it's meant to be. It's a shortcut. Or we find the loopholes. Well, we're married in our hearts. We don't really need a piece of paper. Or we do this with lust. We're not actually having sex with them. Pornography, we're not actually, I mean, it's, I'm not, it's, it's, it's over the screen. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount shuts all of this down. Jesus says, man, you guys think that, that the problem with adultery is simply what you do with your bodies. I'm telling you, it's rooted in what you do with your minds. Adultery starts there. Wisdom or folly starts there. And so we find a loophole, thinking that our pornography addiction is totally fine because we're not actually sleeping with anyone. 
But notice that, again, while talking about sexual foolishness, chapter 6 also reminds us that folly is at work in more ways than just that, where it talks about debt. The alternative to wisdom's way of contentment is, well, I can just take on some more credit cards. I don't have to be content. Or, or getting the stuff, it's the shortcut to stuff apart from putting in the work and savings. And I'm not a Dave's rant, and some of you guys don't even know who that is. Dave Ramsey's is this like big evangelical guy who's like, debt is dumb and all debt is wrong. That's not even what I'm getting at. I think that's, that's for you to work through. I'm saying that there is a source and a type of debt which is rooted in an alternative to contentment and a shortcut to stuff apart from saving and being diligent and wise. As we continue into the slugger to the lazy person, this is the loophole of I'll do it later. I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah, I'm going to do it, but just, you know, a little folding of the hands, just a little nap, a little putting off the procrastination. This is rooted not in wisdom's, like being focused and faithful and committed to the work and hardworking and diligent, but it's the, the do it later loophole. Or as we saw twice, the language of sowing discord, which is a catchphrase for gossip. This is a shortcut to influence that we get to go by being a person of integrity. I get the influence that I want without having to be a person of integrity. And so I can throw others off and in front of the bus in my conversations, all the while building myself up. So you see, she's seductive. That in every single way, that, that foolishness is never going to offer you anything that, that at some level isn't actually good for you or isn't a, a good and, and wise desire. But what she does offer is it outside of the context of wisdom through an alternative, a shortcut, or a loophole. And it's from this then that she is not just seductive, but in that she's deceptive. As it says in 5 verse 3, 6 verse 24, 7 verse 5, 7 verse 21, she has this uh, smooth talk, this seductive speech which compels us and it persuades us. In 7, 1, or 10 through 20, you know, that, that speech where the father almost repeats back kind of what she says. You know, my husband's gone. What's just one night? He's not going to be back for the better part of a month. It's just this once. Or with the sluggard in 6, verse 10. Uh, uh, notice that it doesn't say just sleep and slumber and then ruin. Well, it's a little sleep, just a little slumber, just a little folding of the hands. And as my snooze button and yours can tell us, that that is never just a little folding of the hands. You see, folly, this is the thing, is it's not just a, a, a seduction that ends in nothing. She does give you pleasure. There is some form of that pleasure and, and reward of what she was offering you, but all the while she is pulling the wool over your eyes, getting you to live in a deceived ways. And she does this by developing these lies of, you'll see them behind me, just this once, of justification, of exception, of compartmentalization. These are the lies that folly will develop, that you do not go into a just this once. These are the cul-de-sac that keep you with her, that keep you within foolishness. We get stuck in the just this once mentality where we're giving ourselves over to the lie that we're only going to do it one more time or only just this once. Just one more night with them. Just one more private browsing session. Just one more day until I do it. One more credit card. One more drink. One more pack from the gas station. Just this once. We continue to say it and say it and say it. And we never actually get, it becomes a multitude of times. It's a, it's a cul-de-sac. We also go through, at once we get into the just this once, is then we begin to justify our, fool, our foolishness. 
well, the fact is I'm not married or I'm never going to be married or I'm stuck in a rough marriage. And so this outlet, we justify ourselves. I'm not, I'm not yeah, it's not the best. It's not, it's not great, but it's not foolish. It's not the, I mean, I'm kind of, right? We, we self-talk. They only listen when I'm angry. We're justifying our foolishness. It's not a lie. It's a, it's a little lie. It's not a lie. It's not gossip. It's prayer requests. You see, we justify our foolishness. And then we begin to see ourselves as the exception to wisdom's way. My story, all I've been through, I, that yeah, 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 what the Bible says in wisdom, yeah, that's, if that's great for you, that's good. But my story and what I've gone through, that, that I, I, I'm the one person who gets an exception to all of, of biblical teaching on wisdom. I'm the one that gets the exception. I get the pass on this one. And then we justify, we exception, and then we, we compartmentalize, which is a big word for, we begin to divide ourselves into parts because we can't live with the deception of it. So we begin to tell ourselves, I still love my spouse while we're cheating on them. Or as I had a, a friend who hid tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt from his wife. While they were, this wasn't like we got married and he hid it, while they were married. And the debt began to, and then just growing and growing and growing until she found out. What, what, what was happening there? A compartmentalization, a, a hiding of it. There are some of you that like, man, your, your relationships, um, Sexual or otherwise, physical or digital, that you have, a, you have a compartmentalized self, that you are sitting here in the seat on Sunday, pretending and acting like you are walking within the way of wisdom. And there is this thread, this theme throughout your life that you can't come to terms with. And so the fact is you almost pretend it's a, sec- it's a separate part of you. I've had this happen within my own life. I know friends, I, this is not uncommon that in order to live with some semblance of, of, of life and joy and okayness, we have to separate ourselves into parts. And the way of wisdom is always one of integrity. That, that word, not just being that we are who we are in front of everyone, but we're a whole person. That's the invitation of wisdom. And so when all of these come together, we know the deception of folly has taken its course. When we start seeing folly as wise and wisdom as foolish, this is where some of you may be as we're teasing these things out, that right now you are, you're, you're defending in real time of why you are the exception to everything that's being said here. Or maybe it's not even some area of foolishness I'm talking about, but there's something that the Spirit is laying on your heart and you know this is it. And you right now, right here, are saying that's foolishness and the way that I'm currently living is wisdom. She has run her course and you are deceived. Or at the very least, maybe we're confused. So she's seductive, she's deceptive, and then finally she's destructive. That repeated uh, metaphor of an animal being caught in a trap in chapter 5, 22, 6, verse 2, 6, 27, 7, 22 through 23. All of the time, folly and adultery, whichever layer we're looking at, leads to death. 5, verses 4 through 5, 6, verse 32, 7, verse 23, and 27. And all of this comes about, the trap being sprung, destruction coming about suddenly. That there is a sudden moment of realization when you realize, I realize that we traded our birthright for a bowl of soup. And that folly, in fact, for all of her allure, was a thief. That her shortcuts, her loopholes, her alternatives were all actually a dead end in destruction. 
It may not even be physical death, but it's the death of a relationship, of our lives as we knew it, of our integrity, our peace, our financial stability, our health, our career. You fill in the blank where you have seen it in someone else's life. And so Father, he's a thief, and when we look back on it post-destruction, we, it's, just, it's 2020, it's obvious that this is exactly what would have happened. This is what the father gets at in 6, verse 27 and 28, when he talked about like carrying fire in your lap or uh, walking on coals and thinking that you wouldn't get scorched, you wouldn't get burnt. It's, I, of course, of course, this is exactly what would have happened. But I was too deceived. I didn't, I, I was caught up in the, the foolish lie that I was the exception of the rule. This all leads to, as it says in 5, verses 12 through 14, regret is our only souvenir. Oh, that I would have listened to wisdom, that I would have listened to my teachers. I would have listened, man, not even in my notes. I wish I would have listened to those people in my discipleship group, to my pastors. Notice that it doesn't just say, I would have listened to God, but my teachers. They're in that passage. That there are people in your life that, have, that are calling you to wisdom, not even being perfect themselves. And regret being the one souvenir that we have at the end because it's all too late. Folly is destructive. It ends in the end, and it's, it's obvious with regret as our only souvenir. To kind of bring a little bit of light back into the conversation, it's basically with me and my lactose intolerance. <laughs> it's like I, I, I know that if I have an everything bagel with cream cheese for breakfast, ice cream as a snack, and pizza for dinner, I will only, as seductive and as alluring as that is, that is not going to end well for me. But every single time ice cream's put out, I'm at a party and somebody's got pizza, I just, I get back in the cul-de-sac of foolishness. And then within 24 hours later, regret is my only souvenir. <laughs> and I didn't think I'd be burned and scorched. Um, so follies, here's the thing. With all the hard language here, this is the reality. Folly is at work in you and me and all of us. Each of us. I'm saying me, I'm looking at Lorenzo right now. Isaac's teaching another church. So when you're listening on the podcast, I'm talking to you, your pastors, each and every one of us are always somewhere within Folly's story. And these, these examples that we have here are not exhaustive. My prayer has been this week that there is something, if not one of the examples given here, that the Spirit is setting on you right now as being what that seduction is. And so the question is to name right now, what is it for you? Do we all have a laundry list? Absolutely of ways that it's happening. My prayer is for this week, Spirit one. Give us one. How are you being seduced? How and where has God called you to wisdom's way? But man, the allure of those shortcuts, alternatives, and loopholes, they are seductive. And what, what is that wisdom's way that you're called to? Nate, what is that? And what are the shortcuts? Why are those shortcuts alluring? Somebody name that before we move forward. Or how are you actively? You've moved past seduction and now you're, you're in the deception stage. Where in your life is there foolishness which you or I are saying it's the justice once or it's the justification, I'm the exception, or you're compartmentalizing your life? Where in your life? In what way? It's true for all of us. Or as James would say, each person. James 1, 14 through 15, you'll see behind me, says, each person, everybody, that means everyone, it's tempted when they are lured and enticed by their own desire. Do you see the seduction language? 
Some people say that James is really just like a, a Christian commentary on the book of Proverbs. Um, that was for free. Uh, so you see the seduction. And then what happens? Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, the, de- the deception phase. Sin, I'm deceived that this is the way that I want to live my life. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do you see the, the seduction, the deception, the destruction? And this is true with each person. And you thinking you're the exception to this is setting you up for the fall. So the question is, what can we do? Okay, now we're all like terrified and we're looking at our lives and we've got all this folly. What can we actually do to get out of this, to avoid this seduction, to get out of the deception? We find two different recommended approaches against folly. Coincidentally, they're quite similar to, I told you I was a dork, two approaches to the sirens of Greek mythology. Anybody know the sirens? Greek mythology, some of you have sort of talked about them. Uh, the sirens, they were normally out at sea. They were either mermaids, but that was a later construction. They were normally like half bird, half women. They uh, were really ugly. Um, and so they uh, would sing these incredible songs. And the whole point is they would lure sailors, either the whole boat or just sailors would walk off the ship and drown. So here, I mean, it's just, it's like Lady Folly, right? Like in bird woman form is the, the, this enticing, this seduction, this deception of what they really are and, what's the, and then it only leads to them drowning. They show up uh, regularly in Greek mythology and we get two big approaches to them. So you're gonna geek out with me for a moment, but I promise it's really helpful. The first, you'll see behind me is Homer's Odyssey. It's not, this isn't all of Homer's Odyssey, but a picture from it. Um, there's the bird women. Hi. Um, so if you've ever read, Homer, read Homer's Odyssey, maybe in, in school or college, uh, Odysseus is this warrior. Uh, he returns home from war with his many men. They face many dangers, cyclops and the like. But the most dangerous that they come against are the sirens. And so they know they're coming into the water of the sirens. And so they plan ahead. Odysseus has his men tie him to the mast of the ship. And then he has his sailors plug their ears with beeswax and then wrap it all up together. You can actually see the guys have the like wraps around their, their head to keep the beeswax in. And it works. They make it through the waters fine. We find similar advice just to this, maybe not with actual beeswax, but in Proverbs uh, 5, verse 8 said, keep your way far from her. Or in 7, verse 25, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray into her paths. You want to avoid folly's trap? You want to avoid foolishness and walk in wisdom's freedom? Take practical precautions of avoidance, plan for your weakness, plan for that which would tempt you. You need strong ropes, is what the Father says. You need discipline. The reality is, some of you, some of us, I, 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 I go back and forth. I would argue many of us. Everybody, we just need to get porn off the internet. The, everybody needs, <laughs> there are some of you that we genuinely need like internet blockers on every device that we have. There are some of you that legitimately need to take a time with a dumb phone for a while. And I don't even mean just because of porn. Like, I mean because of, like, social media foolishness. Like, you don't think TikTok does the same seduction, deception, destruction allure? It's only a 10-second video, and then nine hours later. Some of we need a budget. We need to set and constrain ourselves within a budget of contentment, and this is what I have to live with, and I'm, I'm going to pay off debt, and I'm not going to live with it. Some of you, some of us, need to genuinely look into living. Like, just alcohol is not, not on, the, on the radar table for us. We know the allure, the deception, the temptation. Some of us need to go to rehab. 
Some of us need to schedule out our weeks where we constrain ourselves from this kind of laziness. We need to make a rule that instead of sowing discord and gossiping, I'm just going to make a decision for the rest of this year. I'm not going to talk about anyone who's not present. So there's actually a rule within the early church. They had engraved above their tables. that more or less said, at this table, uh, we, we don't talk about anyone who's not seated here. They were radically committed to not having a community of gossip. I was doing a counseling appointment with someone within our church who uh, had just noticed over their, their, uh, their relationships and dating and kind of still working through that, that they regularly would find themselves not just physically but even emotionally jump, moving ahead. Their desire to move the relationship so fast, they were regularly pushing that emotional boundary of where, how much should I be opening up with this other person at this stage of the relationship. That was definitely happening physically as well. And so the, the wisdom of kind of thinking this through was them literally sitting down with a piece of paper and saying either by months or by some other factor which I'm bringing other people into to approve within the relationship, this is the level of how much I'm disclosing about myself, my spirituality. This is, this is the hand-holding. This is the kiss phase. This is the, right? This is when we're talking about this kind of stuff. Well, the whole point was this is someone who identified my allure, my temptation is to give myself into relationships, to be foolish in giving myself over to someone who has not committed their whole selves to me. And so I'm going to tie strong ropes around myself, not for the sake of the constraint, but the freedom that it brings. And to play around with Odysseus' example, worth highlighting as well, is not just that you need to tie yourself to the mass, because you can't. You need some really good beeswax, friends. You need fellow sailors who they themselves are committed to not falling to foolishness. This is the most difficult thing for some of you. You want to live in wisdom's ways, and you are surrounded by a bunch of people who want nothing other than foolishness. You need to find people who, as annoying as they may be, will commit to holding you to your commitments. People that will put beers wa- be- beers wax, beeswax in their own ears. <laughs> And so this is found within the context of the local church, within the community, within your friendships, and within your discipleship group. That you tell people, man, this is the thing that I'm struggling with. This is the folly. And so here is the precaution. Here's how I'm tying myself to the mast. And I want you on a weekly basis just to ask how it's going. And to keep poking when it seems like I'm giving short answers to ensure that I'm being honest. And I'm saying this right now, right here, because I want to be held not to when I'm being deceived, but right now when I'm of right mind. This is super practical. Now, here's the thing. We need, like I said, what Homer's Odyssey gives us, the Father's words, we need strong ropes and beeswax friends. And this is where most Christian teaching stops. You need accountability groups, right? You need to have the the spiritual disciplines and put all that stuff in place. Yes and amen. But when we stop here, we miss most of the Father's advice. It's actually on a second approach. It looks a lot more like the Argonautica uh, Jason and the Argonauts, they too faced the sirens, and they took a completely different approach because of who they had with them. They had Orpheus, the um, infamous, well, infamous is bad, but the famous musician and poet. And as they made their way into the waters of the sirens, he takes up his lyre, and he plays loudly a more beautiful song that drowns out the sirens' call. Often, our approach to folly, to temptation is we look purely to strong ropes, clenched fists of obedience, reminding ourselves of the stupidity of folly. Don't be seduced. Don't be stupid. Don't do this. 250 years ago, Thomas Chalmers, he said it was not enough. 
this is like such a good post-hardcore band uh, um, album name. But he wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That's like, this will destroy you. Like, Explosions <laughs> in the Sky, this is like their new album. The Explosive Power of a New Affection. And so here's, here's this quote of what he says here. He says, the love of the world, which we can just call that the foolishness, not loving the world like God does, but that, that preoccupation towards the way of the world, cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. But may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy? This is his opening question of the book. The way to get rid of foolishness is not by naming that foolishness is foolish. You need something more than that. And in the uh, expulsive power of a new affection, that's the whole point. You need a new affection. You need a sweeter song. Something which drowns out the song of the sirens. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I talked about In-N-Out on road trips, and here it is again is, man, when I go on a road trip, all of the billboards for Jack in the Box, for McDonald's, as, as alluring and seductive as those burgers and things look, they do not, I don't even, it's not, don't go to McDonald's, don't go there, I'm not trying super hard, I'm not tying myself to the mask to make sure I don't go to, I am caught up in the delight of Lady In-N-Out and what she offers me, so I don't need to do that. In the same way, the, the, with the Argonautica, with Orpheus's song, and what I'm going to show here in a moment, this is exactly what the father does in Proverbs says you need a sweeter song. In 5, verse 15 through 23, that was that racy bit right there in the middle, right? The father says, to talk about adultery on that layer right now with marriage, find your wife, or, or just a universal, you know, your spouse as the sweeter song amidst the allure of adultery. Delight in your spouse. This is the one time in the Bible that, you, that people are commanded to get intoxicated. Nowhere else in the Bible does it ever say get intoxicated, except for right here and it's to be intoxicated with your spouse. So you know what the solution is? If you don't feel intoxicated, keep drinking. Right? Those of you that are married, and you're like, man, I'm like totally clear-minded. I'm not intoxicated with my wife. You're set up to be intoxicated by the, what is it, the bosom of the adulteress is what it says. And so for those of you that are married, that is the commitment, man, is I'm choosing It's not that I just find myself, I don't fall into delighting over my spouse. I, by wisdom, am making the decision that my wife, my husband, this is the person that I'm going to delight in. This is the person that is going to be the sweeter song. And if I don't feel that that's true, I'm not listening hard enough. That this is the gift, this is the person that God has given me. Now, at some point we'll probably deal and talk through this more within the context of marriage, either in a later series. But I would just say today, right here, um, one, some of you are in that place, okay, how do I do that? Talk to a pastor. Some of you, you guys need to set up a, a, a set of series with an LMFT, with a therapist, and work through this stuff together. But, but this is the invitation for those of you that are married and feeling that. Um, I'm already over. Can I get two minutes to say something really quick? Okay. When it comes to this passage, this has been misused in two ways, specifically when talking about with wives and delighting in, those, in, in your husband. Um, how do I put this? Um, Regularly, husbands who have an ongoing porn addiction find themselves then getting married to their wife and they treat their wife like their methadone. That they move their addiction over to their wife and then they see their wife not as a person to be delighted in but as a source for their own addiction to an orgasm. Um, that is a misuse of this passage. Some of you guys the main, like, that are married and you're finding yourself in this place, you see your wife this way, the solution is not that you put your addiction to your wife, but you deal with the addiction. 
so you can actually see your wife as a person. That's a side thing. The second one that's a side thing is the responsibility of who delights in the wife is put on the husband, regardless of what the wife does. This passage similarly has been misused to beat women into that you've got to look this way, act this way, be this way in order for your husband so he doesn't commit adultery on you. You've got to be sexually available at all times constantly. Like it gets like borderline rapey. And the whole point here is that not that the wife is constantly giving herself over to the husband. She needs to be available. Paul says don't deprive one another. But that basis where the wife somehow has responsibility for whether or not her husband commits adultery is absolutely ridiculous. I'm done. Um, Now, but here's the thing, though. Beyond just the adultery layer, let's move into the foolishness. In Proverbs, who's your wife? You guys can answer. Wisdom. Wisdom is your spouse. And so what what the father seems to be doing here is saying, delight, give your whole self over to delighting in wisdom, regardless of whether or not you're married, to keep you not just from sexual foolishness, but all foolishness. Delight in wisdom. I don't know what it means to delight in wisdom's breasts, though. At the very least, it is to delight in the full entirety of wisdom's offerings and who wisdom is and what wisdom is. This is exactly what the father then picks up on and he repeats in 7 verse 4. He makes it blatant. He says, say to wisdom, you are my sister. Now, it's weird for us, but in the Song of Solomon, to, to call a woman who's not your sister your sister is usually wrapped up in like very, very intimate language, family language, Right? It's weird for us that sexually that would be connected somehow. Different time, thousands of years ago. It's going to be okay. But the whole point is, say to wisdom, you are my intimate friend, that I delight in you. And this is how verse 5, chapter 7 says, will keep you from the forbidden woman and her smooth words. So here we have, you need not just strong ropes and beeswax friends. You need a sweeter song. You need both discipline and delight. And we're going to get into just this next week with Lady Wisdom's speech. But here, as we wrap up, how do we locate this and how do we hear Wisdom's song amid the folly of our lives and of our world? I would just set it before us as this. To hear Wisdom's song is to hear God in Jesus playing that sweeter song of wisdom in the key of you. To hear the song of wisdom in the key of you. To see Jesus, like Orpheus, on the bow of the ship, playing the lyre and playing out the song of wisdom, but doing it not just out there in wisdom, but in the key of, of you and me. And then to listen intently, to delight in that song. So practically what this means is to reverse engineer your life around wisdom. To think through at the end of your life, who is Jesus making me into and who do I want to be? I refer to this as as Grandpa Ryan, but regardless, me, gray-haired, I got no teeth left. I'm within a few days of croaking. And here's the thing, that may happen on the way home, but we, we ride with the imagination for a second. If I've got the full breadth of my years to give to this, what kind of man and person do I wanna be? What kind of woman, what kind of person do you wanna be? And so here for me, I reverse engineer. At the end of my life, what do I want my relationship to Jesus to be like? Faithful. I want to be consistent. I want to have an intimacy with him. Okay. What are the very real practical decisions I make on a daily basis that get me there? You don't, you don't get there by, by graduating and you just find, oh, here I am. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm you know, 57 and now I pray in tongues every time I pray and like I, doors open for me and I feel this deep intimacy with Jesus. You don't graduate into that. 
You, you move. It's the trajectory language that Proverbs has been setting up for us. Similarly, man, if I want to be at the end of my life, I have no control over, over my body and what circumstances may happen or what will happen to my wife. But if at the end of my life, I want to be sitting on a rocking chair when we both got no teeth and we're holding hands and still in love, that requires very real practical decisions I make on a daily basis. I don't get there accidentally. So I'm like, there, you, hi, I like you a lot. If I, here's the thing, I can't control whether or not my kids follow Jesus. I can't. I can't manipulate them into the kingdom. But at the very least, I can hope that they grow up in a house where they don't grow to resent the church and to hate Jesus because of their dad's hypocrisy. So that means very real steps of honesty and apology, right? Do you see what's happening? Oh, here's, I'm, I'm beginning to hear wisdom's song, and this is far more beautiful than me getting at the end of my life alone and my kids hate me, but nobody ever decides that. But that is where folly leads. That's the whole point is she deceives and seduces, not over the course of months, but years over a lifetime. And that's the terrifying reality is you getting to the end of your life and realizing that you had spent the whole time dancing with foolishness. I can't control any of my friends, any of my relationships. Okay, if I want to be someone who's rich, that when I look at the end of my life, that my deepest wealth is the relationships that I have with others. Not even with their perception of me, but my, my relationship with them. That, that immediately changes the way that I, that I engage with others. I can't control the stock market. I can't control any, any, anything within my finances, but within my own responsibility. I want to be someone that has gifts to give. I want to be generous in my old age. I want to be able to leave my kids at least something. Their dad works for a church, so that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> I can't control any of you, but being a pastor, okay, what, what kind of a, at the end of my life, what do I want to be able to say as a pastor who served collective church? You see, when we miss out on hearing the song, that's when we begin to, the folly seduction becomes so alluring because we don't have a song to dance to. You can go through it with your work, your career, with your body and your health. To hear the sweeter song is to become friends with, with Grandpa Ryan or, or Grandma, Grandpa, you, you at, at, towards the end of your life as you're moving into that, those final years. Who is the person you want to see there? And that requires resolve and commitment. Now, here's the thing. All of what I've just said, though, is, is really, really helpful for those of us who find ourselves in the seductive or the deception, deceptive stages of folly. To get out of the deception, to get away from the seduction, to find the sweeter song. But, but what about for those of us who find ourselves in the wake of folly's destruction? Either right now or in the past. That, that foolishness did lead to destruction and fallout and, and death on all of these different levels. What about for us? The sweeter song may help me now in these other areas, but that back there has been falling apart. Or this right now is falling apart. What about then? The good news of what we saw last week is that the wisdom of God as our, as our spouse, Jesus as the arrival and the fulfillment of what is poetically personified here, Jesus is an incredibly faithful husband to his bride, to you and me. The second Timothy 2 says that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Amidst in all, amidst and even through all of, of the destructive fallout of your folly, your adultery against wisdom, against God, your idolatry, that Jesus stands with forgiveness and a, a new start on wisdom's way. 
regardless of the destruction, regardless of what you're going through, that it's not simply just a, a okay, we're going to pick ourselves up and we're going to try this again, but there is actually a new life, forgiveness and reconciliation on the other side of this. And this all comes from the fact that forgiveness, like all of us know, isn't cheap. Forgiveness is cheap, is not, is, is at the end of the day, it only goes, forgiveness is only as costly as deep as the hurt goes. And for us to commit adultery, this, this cheating on foolish, on wisdom with foolishness is, is costly. So costly that we remind ourselves and we see that this is, this is where it brought Jesus was to the cross. That Jesus' death on the cross is the place where where he enters into the destructive ends of our foolishness. He allowed the, the, the ends of our folly that carried him to death. So that regardless of all of the fallout of your life and all of the addictive patterns to foolishness, all of your seduction, all of the, the destruction and the fallout, that you have someone there, even if it brings you to your literal deathbed, you have someone there named Jesus who is able to stay even when you're faithless, I'm faithful. And that with me, there is, there is new life. There is life in the age to come. There is resurrection. There is a new life in the midst of this. And the reason why is, is that some of us, man, we get to the destructive and we move back into the cul-de-sac with folly. It's what researchers call uh, the, the what-the-hell effect within dieting. You eat one pizza and then you're just, it's all downhill from there. You have one bite of ice cream and then you give yourselves over to the what-the-hell effect is what it's called. And there, there are some of us here that because of the destruction, we have told ourselves the fallout of what we've brought in our lives, that now is who I am. I am defined by that fallout, that moment, that literal adultery or other folly. And so we just give ourselves over to giving up on wisdom's way. We give ourselves up to ever finding our way back into wisdom or life as we could actually have it. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in his death, he has met you in that destruction. And by his resurrection, there is new life actually available to you on the other side of this.